Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. This is Rick Loiza in studio with my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. How are you doing today, Jacob? Good. How are you, Dad? I'm doing very well, thank you. So today we're going to talk about a guy named Jerry Colangelo. That's right. Now, this guy wasn't a player in the NBA. No, he never played, although he did coach very briefly. He was a general manager, a scout, and an owner. So how did a guy like this, it's not you know, publicly well-known, make it into the Hall of Fame? Well, a lot of it had to do with just his contributions overall to the game of basketball. Like I said, he spent a full career working in the NBA, some for the Bulls, mostly for the Suns. But the big thing that he really did, in my opinion, is uh, his contributions to the American national team, so our Olympic team, and how they go to the Olympics and trying to craft and build a team that could win the gold medal consistently. So, how did he get into basketball in the first place? Well, he actually was a basketball player. He played college basketball at the University of Illinois and was a really, really good player. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the episode, but he was... If he were playing today, he would have played in the NBA because the NBA is bigger and it has more teams. Back then, when he was coming out of college, the NBA only had eight teams. Oh, wow. So, there was only a few rookies made the NBA. Only about 16 rookies made the NBA every year. And he wasn't in that top 16. Uh, today, almost 70 rookies a year go to the NBA. So he was definitely would have been one of the 70 best players. But back then, it was really only 16, 16 spots for rookies. And, and he didn't quite make the cut. But then <laughs> he still made it into the Hall of Fame anyway. He still made it into the Hall of Fame anyway without actually playing professional basketball. So that, that's quite an accomplishment for him. That's amazing. Well, let's get into the episode then. All right. Sounds good. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza. This is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we're going to talk about a man who has had an incredible contribution to American basketball over the last several decades. And he's done most of his work behind the scenes. He's probably the quietest Hall of Famer you've ever heard of. He's not flashy. He doesn't bring attention to himself. He just goes about his job trying to make basketball a better game. And unless you're a really big NBA fan, you may not have heard of him. His name is Jerry Colangelo. He was born on November 20th, 1939 in Chicago Heights, Illinois, where he was also raised. Chicago Heights was a working class suburb of Chicago. He was raised in a place full of good, hard-working families. He came from humble means, and sports were a big part of his life. He played both basketball and baseball at Bloom Township High School. He excelled in both sports, but thought that any future that he might have as an athlete was going to be in basketball, 
and he earned a college scholarship to play basketball. He was originally committed to attend the University of Kansas where he was going to be teammates with Will Chamberlain. But when Chamberlain decided to leave school a year early, Colangelo decided that transferring to another school would be a better option. I probably would have done the same thing. So he transferred to the University of Illinois, which was much closer to his home, and he had a very successful career with the Fighting Illini as he was named All-Big Ten Conference and he was the captain of the team in his final year. However, his talent wasn't quite where it needed to be to play in the NBA, and he knew it. The NBA was a lot harder to make back then. There were only 8 teams and each team typically carried only 10 or 11 players. That means that there were only around 85 spots in the entire NBA and he wasn't quite good enough to grab one of those spots. Now compare that to today where there are 30 teams and each team carries 16 or 17 players meaning that today there are around 500 spots in the NBA. If he had played today he would have definitely found a spot in the league. So since he could not make the NBA, he went into business in his hometown of Chicago, but never strayed far from the game. Just four years after graduating from college, he joined the front office of the brand new expansion team, the Chicago Bulls. He was hired as their first marketing director, a scout, and an assistant to the president of the team. And he did an excellent job in all of his roles with the Bulls. He was the kind of guy that no matter who he worked for, he would have been one of their best employees. He just knew how to get things done. So after just two years with the Bulls, there was another new expansion team that wanted to hire him away. The new team was the Phoenix Suns, and they wanted him to be their general manager. Now, I'm not sure what they call this position in other countries, and I say that because nearly 20% of our audience comes from outside the United States. So here in the United States, the general manager is the person responsible for putting the entire team together. The general manager hires the head coach, and in some cases, also hires the assistant coaches as well. The general manager is also responsible for picking and signing all of the players. He or she is, in fact, the architect of the team. So Colangelo is the general manager or GM of this brand new team. He hadn't even turned 30 years old and was by far the youngest person in the league to hold that position. But he begins his work in building his new team in Arizona. For a brief period in the early 1970s, he names himself as the coach of the team. And he served in that role for only a year and a half, winning approximately half his games. He then decided that he could make a bigger contribution to the team as the full-time general manager. And in that capacity, he did a great job. In just their eighth season as a team in the NBA, they made it all the way to the finals where they lost to the Boston Celtics in 1976. And that was quite an accomplishment because of what happened seven years earlier in 1969. Now, this is a good story. At the end of their very first season, the Phoenix Suns were tied for the worst record in the NBA, which is not unusual for a first-year team. But since there was a tie for the worst record, there had to be a coin flip to see which of the two teams would get to pick first in the upcoming draft. The coin flip was between Colangelo's Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks, who had also just finished their first year in the league. The best player coming out of college that year was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Now He was still known as Lou Cinder at the time, 
but for the purposes of this story, I'll refer to him as Kareem. So the coin flip was really to see who would get Kareem, and everybody knew it. There was nobody else coming out of college who was even close to the skill level of Abdul-Jabbar. Some of you may already know how this comes out, but the coin was flipped and Milwaukee wins the coin flip. They drafted Kareem and two years later, in only their third year of existence, they won the 1971 NBA championship led by Kareem and Oscar Robertson, who they signed a year earlier. Phoenix drafted Neil Walk. Do you remember Neil Walk? Yeah, neither do I. I had to look him up. He only played for Phoenix for five years before he was traded away to the New Orleans Jazz. He only played eight years total in the NBA and had a career scoring average of 12 points per game. Not exactly Kareem standards. I'm sure that Colangelo wishes that he could do that coin flip again. If they had been able to draft Kareem, the history of the Phoenix Suns would have been completely different. But even as it is, he still made the finals in 1976 as I had previously mentioned. And that is an incredible accomplishment. But eventually, Colangelo began to get a little frustrated with the owners of the team as he felt he wasn't getting the support he needed to put together a consistently good team. So he puts together a group of investors to buy the Phoenix Suns so that he could be the person at the very top of the organization. And that's how he got into ownership in the NBA. They started to get better through the 1980s and in 1992, he made the trade that would bring Charles Barkley to the Phoenix Suns. With Sir Charles, they made their second trip to the finals in 1993 when Charles Barkley led the way. But today, the Phoenix Suns are still looking for that first NBA championship. Back in 93, it was the Chicago Bulls completing their first three-peat. With the Suns, Colangelo won the Executive of the Year award four times, which is still a record. But running the Suns wasn't enough. In 2005, he took over as the managing director of USA Basketball, which is the organization behind the United States national basketball team. And this is a whole story by itself. And I'll share that story right after this. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back, and let's get into Colangelo's contributions to the United States National Basketball Team, or Team USA. He took over in 2005 as the managing director of the program, and he completely rebuilt it. But before I continue with this, I need to give you the history that led to Team USA hiring him in the first place. Most of you know that NBA players were going to be allowed to play in FIBA-sanctioned international competition starting in 1992. And that led to the forming of the original Dream Team with players like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, and Patrick Ewing. In all, that team had 11 future Hall of Famers. And they destroyed the competition, winning their games by an average of 44 points. The closest game they had at the Olympics was when they defeated Croatia by 32 in the gold medal game. And this led to many countries inviting American coaches to come over and show them the American way of playing basketball. These American coaches, mostly from college and a few from the NBA, were putting on instructional clinics for international coaches, showing them different options for the fast break and how to play the game at a faster pace, 
meaning that they would need to get better at the transition game. And this led directly to more and more international players making it to the NBA. At the 1992 Olympics, there were only a handful of NBA players playing on other teams. There was Detlef Schramm for Germany, Sarunas Marshalonis for Lithuania, and then there was Drazen Petrovic and Dino Raja for Croatia. And I think that was it. But that would change. Four years later, in 1996, at the Atlanta Olympic Games, the American team won their games by an average of 32 points. That means that the rest of the world was starting to catch up. And the competition had many more NBA players than they did four years earlier. In 2000, at the Sydney Olympic Games, Team USA won their games by an average margin of only 22 points. In the semi-final game, they beat Lithuania by only two points. The rest of the world had nearly caught up as even more NBA players were playing on the other teams. The 2004 team, featuring Allen Iverson, Tim Duncan, and a very young LeBron coming off the bench, won their games by only five-point margin. The world had fully caught up as Team USA lost three games during those Olympics and only came away with a bronze medal. And that's when Team USA knew that something had to be done. So they brought in Colangelo to fix it. You see, up until 2004, the way that the American national team was selected was that a committee invited the 12 best American NBA players to be part of the team. They then had them practice together for a week and then send them off to the Olympics expecting them to beat other teams that had been playing and practicing together for years. And when you consider that the other teams had more and more NBA players on them, you could no longer expect that Team USA could just roll in and just beat everybody with superior talent. Colangelo rebuilt the American program. First, he decided that he needed to name a permanent coach for the national team. They could no longer just pick an NBA coach at the last minute and send him to the Olympics. They needed a coach who could commit for a long-term period of time, who can outline a vision for the type and style of team he wanted. So he selected Mike Krzyzewski to be that coach. Second, he wanted players to commit to the team for a minimum of three years at a time, and they would have a pool of around 30 total players committed to the team. And they wanted this for several reasons. With that many players, you had backups in case of injury, and the backups would already be familiar with the system and the other players. The players were also to be a good mix of veterans and young players. Now this allows the young players to, to continue to develop within the national team system. This develops the current team while also developing players for future teams. It's basically what other countries have been doing for decades. It's just that now America was doing it too. So in 2008, at the Beijing Olympics, the American team was known as the Redeem Team, led by Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, and Dwayne Wade. Now that they had several summers to practice together and learn Coach Krzyzewski's system, they were ready. They not only won the gold medal, but won their games by an average of 28 points, re-establishing their dominance over the rest of the world. In 2012, at the London Games, the team was again led by Kobe and LeBron, and they increased their average margin of victory to 32 points. In 2016, at the Rio Games, the team was led by Kevin Durant and won their games by an average of 27 points. At that point, Colangelo left Team USA to the leadership of others, but he did exactly what he was asked to do. Team USA is in fantastic shape. 
They went 97 and 4 under Colangelo's leadership. He then took one more shot at the NBA. While he was running Team USA, he had sold his ownership of the Phoenix Suns. So now he could go to any team he wanted, and he chose the Philadelphia 76ers and ran that team for a few years before retiring completely from running sports teams. He is now the chairman of the Basketball Hall of Fame. I don't want to go too far away from basketball here, but Colangelo was also part owner of the Arizona Diamondbacks baseball team, even sitting on the rules committee for Major League Baseball. He owned the Phoenix Mercury of the women's NBA. He also owned the Arizona Rattlers of the Arena Football League, which plays indoor American football in a smaller 8 versus 8 format. He now spends his time chairing the Hall of Fame as well as sitting on the board of directors for various organizations like a museum and some nonprofits. He's also a real estate developer building residential and commercial properties. When you consider all of his contributions to the game of basketball, it is easy to see why he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2004 as a contributor. He has given so much to the game, he deserves to be recognized for his accomplishments. Well, that's all for our story today. Join us next time as we release the final episode in the NBA nickname series. We will go through the Central Division and find out how the following teams got their nicknames. The Chicago Bulls, the Indiana Pacers, the Detroit Pistons, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Milwaukee Bucks. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. And don't forget to check out sportshistorynetwork.com for more information on my podcast and the rest of the podcast on our network. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. 
head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.